Heavenly Father, we just come before you. We're so grateful that we have this opportunity to fellowship and to be in your word. I pray, Father, that you would be exalted and that you would be glorified by everything that's said today and that we would walk away with just a greater appreciation of the privilege that we have that we can know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we get started, I wondered if you would think with me for a moment about one or two of your closest friends. Maybe they're here with you today, but do you have them in mind? Now think back to when you first met. Chances are this friendship grew over time as you began to trust that you could share your failures, your hurts, your disappointments, your hopes, your fears. And you've probably spent a lot of time together. You pray for one another. You have fellowship, maybe over coffee, meals. You laugh together. You cry together. You shop together. You serve together. You probably never run out of things to talk about. And you're accessible to each other any time of day. And the more time you invest in this friendship, the more you'd probably say you know each other. But have you ever considered that we can only really know someone to the extent that they choose to let you know them? For instance, we don't know details about someone's past experiences or their current struggles or what they're thinking unless they choose to share them with us. We may think we know someone based on what we observe, when in truth, someone must choose to let you know them. Let me put it another way. We can't just decide we're going to be friends with someone without their consent. For example, I can't just decide I'm going to be friends with Dolly Parton, even though I think that would be pretty cool because I'm a big fan. But, oh, there's one thing probably you didn't know about me. We are fast on our way to being friends. But anyway, just me saying that I'm going to be friends with her wouldn't make it happen. She would first have to at least know of me, and then she'd have to agree to be my friend. Well, let's open up now to Genesis 18. And today we're going to see the encounter between God and Abraham that gives us insight into the marvelous truth that God chose Abraham to be friend and invited him to know his, more about his perfect character. So beginning in Genesis 18.1, we read, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now Abraham was sitting under the shade of the oak trees in Mamre, which is in Hebron. And you may recall that Mamre was a location where Abraham had previously built an altar to God and settled after he and his nephew Lot had separated, and also after God had promised to give Abraham the land and offspring too numerous to count. And as Abraham was sitting outside his tent in the heat of the day, he looked up and he saw three men approaching. He ran to them, and in humility 
according to the hospitality customs of the day, he bowed himself to them and asked them to stay for rest and refreshment, offering a bit of bread and water to wash their feet. After his guests agreed to stay, Abraham made haste to oversee the preparation of the meal. He told Sarah to quickly take three siyas, which is about seven quarts of fine flour, and make cakes or bread, and then he took a calf to be prepared quickly. And I don't know about you, but when I read these verses, I thought, there is nothing quick about either of these tasks. That's a lot of pressure, Abraham. Baking bread and roasting a calf would take hours, but then I realized that I was reading into the text based on my own personal experiences. I mean, not to say that I've actually processed or prepared a calf, but you know what I mean. In my studies, I learned that the cake or bread was likely an unleavened bread, like uh, perhaps a pita or maybe a tortilla that would have been fried and then wrapped around the meat. And although I assumed that the entire calf was processed and cooked at one time, it was probably just a portion of the meat that was prepared, which would have obviously taken less time. And at first reading of this passage, it appears that Abraham's humble and hurried response suggests that he knows that he's in the presence of divine guests. And yet, we read in Hebrews 13.2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares, indicating that it wasn't until later in the visit that Abraham became aware that he was in the presence of the Lord himself. Abraham demonstrated gracious generosity and kindness to guests he didn't even know. It was the heat of the day when most men would be napping because it was too hard to work, But he saw these men approaching, and he didn't hesitate to invite them for rest and refreshment. It's also interesting to note that the fine flour, like Sarah used, was also used to make the bread that was placed in the tabernacle as a food offering to the Lord. And also, Abraham selected a calf that was tender and good. In Leviticus 3, 6, we read that for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female. He shall offer it without blemish. So although Abraham didn't know who his guests were at this point, he had surely prepared a meal acceptable to the Lord, and Abraham stood by them while they ate. Although the cultural norms for hospitality were different in the ancient Near East in Abraham's day, such as bowing to your guests, there's still an underlying principle that applies to us today. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to others, not only spiritually, but tangibly, You'll recall in Genesis 12 that Pharaoh had given Abraham many possessions to include livestock and servants, which, of course, was before he realized that Sarah was actually Abraham's wife and not his sister. But despite Abraham's deception, he was able to leave with all that he had been given. Abraham was blessed by the Lord, and he in turn blessed others. And the same principle applies to believers today. When the Lord blesses us, it's not for the purpose of keeping that blessing entirely to ourselves. Instead, it's an opportunity to bless others in a very practical and tangible way that shows the love of Christ to others. Now, Abraham extended hospitality to his guests under the presumption that they needed refreshment, unaware that he was being visited by the Lord and two angels, which we'll see next week in uh, chapter 19.1. Although they didn't physically need refreshment, they still shared a meal with Abraham. God was having fellowship with Abraham, not out of necessity, but because God was his friend. Second Chronicles 27 tells us, 
Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Also, Isaiah 41.8 tells us, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. God came and ate with Abraham not because he needed to, but because it was an intimate expression of their friendship. James 2, 23, 24 tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. This is remarkable to think about, being a friend of the creator and sustainer of the universe. Abraham didn't make friends with God, rather God made friends with him. God was the initiator for this friendship and just as we read in James, it began when God chose Abraham and Abraham responded in faith. Galatians 4.9 declares, But now you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. Abraham was known by God before he knew God. And so too were those who've put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, called friends of God. Jesus said in John 5.14-15, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It's a very, very humbling thing to consider, that God knows us, every detail of our life, to include a lifetime of sin, and yet still chooses to be our friend. God chooses us not because we deserve to be his friends. No, he chooses us by grace alone, despite our sin. And to be sure, God doesn't need friends. He has eternal, perfect fellowship within the Trinity. God is self-sufficient. There's nothing that he lacks within himself, and there's nothing that he needs outside of himself. Furthermore, so great was God's love for us that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins because he desires for us to be his friend. And just as God, as the pre-incarnate Christ, came and ate with Abraham, so Jesus ate and had intimate fellowship with those he chose to be his friends. As believers, we have a taste of future fellowship with the Lord because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But one day, we will have an eternity of fellowship with God in heaven. Revelation 21.3 tells us, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself with them as their God. So as we move along in the passage, starting in verse 9, we begin to see that the visitors came to Abraham's home for the benefit of Sarah. At this point in the historical narrative, not much time had passed since God affirmed his promise to Abraham, back of what we read last week in Genesis 17. The promise that he would give him a son by Sarah. It was at this time that God gave Sarai a new name, Sarah, the future mother of nations and kings, and now here the visitors referred to her by her new name, and they inquired where Sarah was. Abraham responded that she was in the tent, and the Lord confirmed to Abraham the promise that he would return next year, and Sarah would have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent and responded with a whispered laughter. And we can certainly understand her response, right? Because she was 90 years old and well beyond childbearing years. We read in verse 11 that the way of women, which is a figure of speech for a woman's menstrual cycle, had ceased to be with Sarah. And furthermore, she was barren. The Lord had not yet opened her womb to have children. 
From her perspective, as she looked at the circumstances that seemed insurmountable, it was hard to believe. In fact, it seemed impossible. Sarah thought she was concealed from the visitors in the tent and in her thoughts, but God is all-knowing, and there's nothing hidden from God, even the thoughts of man. We learn that in Psalm 94.11. Hagar rightly called God Elroy, the God of seeing, the God who sees all things, knows all things, and therefore he knew that Sarah laughed, and he knew that in her mind she doubted that she could have a son at her old age. And he countered her doubt with a rhetorical question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah was right in that for a man, it would be impossible for her to conceive and have a son with Abraham. This would require divine intervention, and that is precisely what God intended to demonstrate. It was through his power that the promised son Isaac would come. It was at this point in the visit that Sarah and Abraham would have known their special guest was the Lord, and now they had both directly received his promise that within a determined time frame, they would have a son. Romans 4.13 says that for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And Hebrews 11.11 tells us by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. So Abraham and Sarah both initially responded in laughter to the promise that they would have a son, but now they believe that God would do what he had promised. So leaving Sarah to ponder the fact that she would bear a son in a year, the men left towards Sodom, and Abraham continued to be a gracious host as he provided an escort to his special guests. As they looked down from Mamre, they could see the town of Sodom, which is the land that Lot chose to settle in, along with his family. And recall from our studies in Genesis 14, the, mil- the military battle between King Ketelamar and his allies in Sodom and Gomorrah. King Ketelamar took the people of Sodom and Gomorrah to include Abraham's nephew Lot. But when Abraham heard the news about his kinsmen, he gathered his trained men went up against the king and his allies and defeated them, rescuing Lot, bringing back all the possessions, provisions, and people that had been lost. But despite their rescue, Sodom and Gomorrah were categorized by what God called very grave sin. And Ezekiel, well, what exactly then is that grave sin that required God's divine intervention? Their sin was described in Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50, we read, Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. We also read in Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal life. Now, when you study Genesis next week, Genesis 19, you'll see how their grave sin, particularly their immorality and unnatural desire, was fully manifested. Now, Abraham is with his visitors, and the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed by him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. 
Here we see the Lord treating Abraham as a trusted friend and including him in his counsel. Psalm 25:14 says that the friendship or the secret, secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. God gave further assurance to Abraham that he would surely become a great and mighty nation. He was chosen by God and he had been promised many blessings, but there was also a responsibility on his part. He was to charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord so that they might receive God's divine promises. The way of the Lord is another way of saying to live in accordance with what God requires, and the Lord stipulates that he requires righteousness and justice. Righteousness is obedience to what is required according to a standard such as a moral standard, and justice is being free from prejudice, partiality, self-interest, or deception. Abraham's descendants were to live in such a way that they would be a blessing to other nations. What he planned to do to Sodom and Gomorrah was to be a warning for Abraham to faithfully convey to his family and his household. It's really important to consider that God's perfect justice cannot be separated from his wisdom, his omniscience, and his power. In other words, God's judgment is based on the fact that nothing is hidden from him. He has all the facts, and he has infinite wisdom and is all-powerful to act justly based on these facts. And this is what he's revealing to Abraham concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. He says that he will go down to see if what he's heard is true, and he'll know if it's not. But this is for Abraham's benefit. God doesn't need to go down to see. He already knows the extent of their sin. But he wants Abraham to see that he does not judge arbitrarily and without full knowledge. So we read now in verse 22 that the two men, which is previously mentioned were angels, left to head to Sodom, leaving Abraham alone with God. Abraham had discerned that the judgment against Sodom would be swift and complete, and he also understood that God's justice demanded that people get what they deserve and that his judgment is fair. So this moved Abraham to draw near to God to intercede for Sodom. And I just love this. Abraham drew near to God which really shows us the intimacy in the relationship with the Lord. He understood that if God were to completely wipe Sodom away, there was a risk that righteous men would perish too. He likely had the preservation of Lot in his family as mind as well. So Abraham was moved to intercede for Sodom, and he begins by boldly appealing to God's character as if God's reputation is at stake. Surely the judge of the earth would not allow the righteous to receive the same penalty as the wicked, and asked if God would spare the city if 50 righteous people were found. The Lord responds that he would not destroy the city for the sake of 50 righteous people. Then in verse 27, we see Abraham humbly acknowledge the privilege he has of approaching God with his request, for he is merely dust and ashes. He had a right understanding of who he is in relation to who God is. And then he persists in his appeal. What if there are only 45 righteous? Would he spare the city? Pleading with the Lord not to be angry with his persistence, Abraham asks, what if there are 40, 30, 20, and finally 10 righteous found in Sodom? Each time, God says that he will spare the city for the sake of the righteous. Well, we don't know why Abraham stopped at 10. It seems that by this point, he was convinced that God would judge, act justly according to his character. And, you know, we can have the same confidence that God will act justly. Although we may look around at the wicked who seem to prosper and go unpunished for their deeds, 
while the righteous experience hardship and injustice by man, or sometimes even experience the effects of God's judgment towards the wicked. We must remember that there is a future final judgment for all men. John Calvin has said, When God thus seems to be angry with all in common, it behooves us to fix our eyes on the end, which shall evidently discriminate the one from the other. End quote. For the unbeliever, they will one day stand before God to give an account for every thought, every word, every action, and they will be declared guilty of falling short of God's perfect standard, and they will be thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. God's perfect justice must punish sin. However, for the believer, mercy has triumphed over judgment. For Christ took the punishment for our sin upon himself, and we're no longer under condemnation for our sin. Our judgment before Christ is for the purpose of receiving eternal rewards for those things we did of eternal value and with the right motives. Now going back to the text in verse 33, we read that the Lord went his way after speaking to Abraham. On the surface, it may look like God was undecided about how he would deal with Sodom and that Abraham caused God to change his mind. But we know this can't be true. First, God is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. In fact, it's impossible for him to change. His character doesn't change, neither do his plans or his purposes. We read in 1 Samuel 15, 29, The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Secondly, because God is all-knowing, he already possessed all the information he needed to act justly. So then how do we interpret this passage? Well, we interpret scripture with scripture. And so we interpret it based on two parallel truths we find in scripture. The first is that God is completely sovereign over all his creation and his plans will not be thwarted. Isaiah 46, 10 to 11 declares that there is no one like God. He has declared the end from the beginning and his counsel will stand and he will accomplish all of his purpose. God acts according to his predetermined will. Yet, James 5.16 tells us the prayers of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Therefore, the second truth is that our, powers have, our prayers have great power. But then how do these two truths work together? Well, they work together in that God has decreed the end, and he uses our prayers as the means to the end. And just think about that. What a privilege it is to be able to participate in the plans of God through our prayers. And what a beautiful example Abraham has provided us on intercessory prayer. For example, just as Abraham had the privilege of coming before God, so too can the believer draw near to God, boldly approaching his throne of grace, because we've been reconciled to God through Christ, and therefore we have access to him. However, when we approach him, we're not to approach him flippantly, because we acknowledge his holiness and his mercy towards us, which should humble us as we remember that he is God and we are not. Yet we're invited to tell him what's on our hearts, and we're even instructed in Scripture to be persistent in our prayers, as Jesus taught in the parables of the persistent widow coming before the unjust judge in Luke 18 and the persistent neighbor in Luke 11. And as the patriarchs and the prophets of the Old Testament interceded for others, as well as the saints in the New Testament, so are we to intercede for others. This is how we carry each other's burdens, by praying for one another. But do you ever grow weary or discouraged as you intercede for unsaved loved ones day after day without seeing answer to your prayers? If so, 
remind yourself that nothing is impossible for God. When I get discouraged, I only need to remember what God saved me from, and then I'm reminded that no one is beyond God's saving grace. So whether we're praying for that situation that seems impossible for man or interceding on behalf of others, it's important to be sure that the foundation of our prayers are based on the knowledge of God because this is how we learn to trust him and to rest in the outcome. And how amazing and yet incomprehensible it is that the almighty sovereign God should choose to reveal aspects of himself to those whom he first knew. We're finite creatures, and God is infinite, so we can't fully know God, yet he's revealed himself in creation, through his Son, and in his word. Just in these verses in Genesis 18 alone, we've seen that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, he's just, he's merciful, he's never-changing, he's loving, and he's wise, and he's none of these attributes to the exclusion of another. As one author has said, the trajectory of our lives is directed by our understanding of God. Moreover, our eternal destiny hinges on our relationship to him and who we believe he is. If we are to live as he intends us to live, we must know who he is and what he is like, end quote. So let me encourage you to put a high priority on knowing God. Draw near to him by spending time with him through his, this diligent study of his word and through prayer and allow that knowledge to elevate your worship of him, to grow your faith, to shape your prayers, and to pursue his will for your life, all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so hard to wrap our minds around that you would choose us and that you would allow us the privilege to get to know you. Let us not take that for granted. Father, I pray that we would all just desire to know you better and to draw near to you, that it would just grow our trust and our faith in you. May your name be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.